0: In Hebrews chapter uh, 3, the Bible says that we need to um, not forsake the gathering of ourselves together and that we need to exhort one another daily, lest we be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And so I want to talk to you this morning about the deceitfulness of sin. And uh, I'm, of course, we're going to use David's experience uh, as our instruction. So in Second Samuel chapter 11, we'll pick up in verse 5. I'm going to read quite a bit of scripture uh, right now um, as we begin. So he says, it says that the woman conceived, and of course, speaking of Bathsheba, and she sent and told David and said, I am with child. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Uriah, of course, the wife, the legitimate wife of Bathsheba, who is now with child from David. And when Uriah was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did, and how the people did, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house. And wash your feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat, or a load of food, from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down to his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down to your house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest, and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, Tarry here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk, and at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his lord, but he went not down to his house. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew the valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, "'When you have made an end of telling the matters of the war unto King David,' And if it be so that the king's wrath arise, and he say unto thee, Wherefore approached you so nigh unto the city when you did fight? Know ye not that they would shoot from the wall? Who smote Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast a piece of millstone upon him from the wall that he died in Thebes? Why went ye nigh the wall? Then say thou, Thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also." So the messenger went and came and showed David all that Joab had sent him for. And the messenger said unto David, Surely the men prevailed against us, and came out unto us in the field, and we were upon them, even unto the entering of the gate. And the shooters shot from off the wall upon thy servants, and some of the king's servants be dead, and thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also." then david said unto the messenger thus shalt thou say unto joab let not this thing displease thee for the sword devours one as well as another make thy battle more strong against the city and overthrow it and encourage thou him and when the wife of uriah heard that uriah her husband was dead she mourned for her husband and when The morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David and he came unto him and said unto him, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished up and it grew up together with him and with his children it did eat of his own food and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter and there came a traveler unto the rich man. And he spared to take from his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, the man that has done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the Lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said unto David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house, and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, "'because you have despised me "'and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite "'to be thy wife. "'Thus saith the Lord, "'Behold, I will raise up evil against thee "'out of thine own house, "'and I will take thy wives before thine eyes "'and give them unto thy neighbor, "'and he shall lie with thy wives "'in the sight of this son. "'For you did it secretly,' But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also has put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. How be it? Because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. The scripture tells us that it had been the spring of the year, and it was the time of the year that kings go forth to battle. And David, who had always made it his aim and his uh, way to be on the forefront and, and on the front lines of every battle, the Bible says at this particular season, no reason given, that he decided to tarry uh, still at home in Jerusalem and allow Joab uh, to carry the weight uh, of the battle. And so David stays at home and he arises from a late afternoon nap sometime in the early evening and he goes up on the roof of his house. And, and from there, as he's strolling across the way, he sees a, a woman, very beautiful, the Bible says to look upon, uh, bathing herself upon the housetop. And David's lust gets the better of him in, in the season of his ease, and he uh, doesn't put the thought down in his mind, uh, and he doesn't handle the temptation in the right way, uh, and he takes it to the next step, and he begins to ask questions concerning who this woman is. And then realizing who she is uh, and, and that her husband is uh, away in the battle, he takes it then to the next step and he asks some of his servants to go and send for the woman and uh, tell her that David would like a private meeting with her. And so uh, Bathsheba, this woman, fitly so-called, is brought uh, to David to the palace where, wherein then David seduces her uh, and, and spends a night with Bathsheba um, and then and, and sends her back to her house. And in David's mind, um, this is a, a one and done, there's been an affair, you know, it was a night of fun, it was a night of indulgence, sure it was wrong, uh, but we can put this behind us and, and we'll move on now. Never so with God, the Bible says, be sure and know that your sin will find you out. And whether it was a couple of weeks or up to a month, word then comes to David that this woman um, is not going to just be able to go away quietly because she has, in fact, conceived, and because her husband is in the battlefield, there's absolutely no possibility uh, that this conception is by him. This is, in fact, David's child. And at this point, David has a a very uh, serious decision to make. He can either uh, come clean and confess and uh, bring into light what he has done. Uh, everybody sins, um, and, and, and David certainly is no, uh, uh, has no immunity to that. And he can either come clean, or he can seek to cover up his sin. And so uh, David hatches a plan, and he decides that um, he'll, he'll do what he can to try to cover up uh, this sin. And so he sends a message into the battle, and he calls for this woman's husband, Uriah, to come and meet with him in the palace. And so Joab sends him and Uriah comes and David begins just having small talk with him that that absolutely has absolutely no weight behind it or concern of David at all. He asks, so how is Joab doing? You know, and tell me how are the people and how are the, how's the army and how goes the battle and give me this report and, you know, and we should always take care and beware when people beat around the bush with us with small talk. Uh, Certainly if I was Uriah, I'm wondering what in the world does David want with me? And of all the people, you know, but uh, he takes it at face value, and David gives him um, the smoke and mirrors about uh, being concerned about uh, this, that, and the other thing. But, but meanwhile, what David really has in his mind um, is he wants to try to cover up his sin. And so David says, well, thank you, Uriah. I appreciate the intel. You know, why don't you do this? You've been a good messenger. You're faithful, and uh, Joab speaks well of you. Why don't you go to your house? And spend the night with your wife and just refresh yourself, wash your feet and uh, take, take your ease for a night and then tomorrow you can go back into the battle. And he's thinking, you know, what man who's been away from his wife for, for any length of time like this and who has a wife like he has, you know, is going to uh, you know, pass up on the opportunity of spending a night with her in these circumstances? But we see that Uriah, a man of, of great integrity and a man of great dignity, uh, goes to the, the door of the house, even being followed by a mess of food. David sending uh, a feast after him. He, he considers the thing, and he comes to the door with all the servants, and he looks around at the servants, and he looks at the clothes that he's wearing, and he considers where he came from and where he's going to be heading back to. And he thinks, how in the world am I going to go and stand before the other men and tell them that I just spent a night with my wife? And certainly I won't be able to hide it from them. And so he doesn't go to his house that night but he sleeps at the door of the house with all of the other servants of David. And word comes back to David that Uriah didn't go to his house but in fact slept with the servants. And so David now has another decision to make. He can either see this as you know the hand of God that God's not going to let him just get away with, with what he's done here and he can come clean and he can repent and he can confess and bring it into the light and certainly everyone sins and David is an immune. to to the fact that everyone sins, and he has the chance now, again, to come into the light. Or, he can dig a little deeper, and he can make another attempt to try to cover up his sin. Well, hey, what's another try? You know, everybody gets three strikes, right? And so he steps up to the plate, and he calls Uriah back into his presence. And he inquires of him, and he says, well, Uriah, why didn't you go home? Are you out of your mind? You know, you got an opportunity like this? And Uriah gives to David this incredible answer that, that had to have stung, it was intended by God for it to sting, And he says to him, well, how in the world when 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 the men are dwelling in tents and the ark of God, the glory of God is out in the open field and Joab, who is my commander, my superior is out in the field and all of my co-equals are out there sleeping out under the stars. What kind of a man would that make me to go and sleep with my wife while all of that is taking place in Israel? Well, David certainly had no problem sleeping with his wife while all of those things were true. And certainly this was another shot across the bow of David, a warning of God, a call to David for him to repent. And so David hears those words, he hardens his heart, and he says, okay, tarry here in Jerusalem today and tomorrow, and then we'll see what we're going to do. And David comes up with another plan. He calls Uriah back, he eats with him, and this time... David sips, Uriah gulps, which was how it worked. When you, when the king drank, you drank. And so David sipped, Uriah gulped, to the point where it says that Uriah became drunk with wine. And David now, thinking that he'll be weakened and his convictions will be weakened by the intoxication, he sends him to his house again, and he says to Uriah, now go back to your house, eat your food, wash your feet, and lie with your wife. And Uriah... Again, comes to the gate of the palace. He sees the servants of David that are are there, and he doesn't go to his house, but he sleeps the second day with the servants. Word comes back to David, didn't go home. And David has a choice at this point. He can either realize that he's not going to get away with his sin, and he can come clean, and he can repent, because everyone sins, and (laughs) David certainly isn't immune to that, Um, or... David can uh, continue to seek to cover up his sin and continue to try to get away with this thing. And rather than uh, repenting, rather than responding and doing the right thing, at this point, David decides, I'm the king, I will use the powers at my hand and at my disposal to cover up this thing and make it go away. And so David sits down and he writes a letter. And in that letter, he he basically Gives or issues a death warrant for Uriah. Then David capitalizes on the integrity and the character of Uriah, seals the envelope, puts it in his own hand, in Uriah's hand. And then asks him to bring it to Joab with no concern whatsoever that Uriah will open this sealed letter and read it and find out what the contents are. He knows the kind of character of the man that he is absolutely about to murder, but covering his own sin... And not experiencing the reproach or the shame of it is of greater value to David than the character of this man's life. And so Uriah brings the message to Joab. Joab uh, continues in obedience to David's wishes. He sees Uriah slain on the battlefield, uh, sends message back to David, uh, along with the, the message that, that, that Uriah is dead in the forefront of this battle. Not just one man died, a few men died uh, in in this plan that David had. And David uh, sends cons, consoling word back to Job. Hey, one dies as much as the other. It can happen in battle and the whole thing. And then David, in a show of excellent king-like integrity and character, seeks after this poor widowed woman who has lost her valiant husband in battle, takes her to the palace, and as the hero of the story, David takes his place as this woman's new suitor. And he decides that he'll take her into his care and that she can now be his wife. And the Bible says that he bore or or he took the son that she was pregnant with uh, as his own. And of course it was his own, but not very many people knew that. Probably at this point only him and probably a very wise Joab uh, who isn't that stupid (laughs) In, in the whole thing. And about a year goes by and David thinks, okay, that was shady, that was a little twisted, it was a little crooked, I hit it on the third pitch, but we got away with it. And and, and we'll watch our tracks in this. But the chapter ends by telling us, but the thing which David did displeased the Lord. Now, there's two things that can happen here. Either David can get away with his sin, or... The word of God can come to pass that says, be sure and know that your sin will find you out. Guess which one's going to happen? And so about a year after this whole episode is gone in the life of David, the prophet Nathan pays David a visit on a particular day and he gives to David the story about a rich man and a poor man. (laughs) And a rich man who had many flocks and a poor man who just had one precious ewe lamb that he invested in that had become more like a pet than property to this young man. And the rich man, having a traveler come and visit him, now decides that he's going to make a feast for the the visitor, but he's not going to take from his own flock. He's going to take from this poor man's one lamb, and so he steals it from him, dresses it for the wayfaring man, and leaves this man uh, bereft of his precious ewe uh, to mourn the loss of it just for the sake of feeding a visitor that would mean absolutely nothing to him. And David hears the story by, by Nathan the prophet and being engaged in it, he becomes incensed. And the Bible says that his wrath was gone greatly aroused. His emotions are stirred. There's something inside of David that just is so agitated by this. It's amazing, isn't it, men, how bad our sin looks on someone else? And David gives command to Nathan the prophet concerning, wasn't asked for counsel concerning this man, but David gives it anyways. And David says, the man that has done this thing shall surely die. And he's going to restore fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Literally, that his heart was hardened in the matter. Now, the law declared that he would restore fourfold. Anytime you would steal property from someone else and you were found out, you would restore fourfold. But death was not the the, the penalty for stealing somebody's lamb, but David takes it to that level and he says, this man will surely die because he had no pity. And then Nathan, probably the hardest encounter that he ever had to have within his entire life, looked David square in the eye and by the spirit of God said, thou art the man. David, you are the rich man in that story. And then he proceeds to tell David what God had done for him. I've taken you from among the sheepcote, I delivered you from the hand of Saul, and I made you the king of a united house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had not been enough, David, If you had wanted more, I'd even gave you his wives into your bosom. And if you had wanted more than what you had, I would have given you such and such things, whatever it is that your soul desired. That's what I've done for you. But now, David, this is what you've done. You have despised the commandment of the Lord. You despise the thing that you knew was absolutely wrong. First in taking this woman... That was clearly not your wife in an open act of adultery. And then not only did you do that, David, but you refused to confess your sin in all of the opportunities that I gave you and to come clean into the light. And then your sin became deceit, which is a lie. And then your sin went a step further and your sin became murder and you killed a man with the sword of the enemies of the Lord. They did it, but you did it, David you're the one who's guilty of it. And so that's what you've done, and now here will be the consequences in your life, David. Because you have done this thing, and because you had no pity, the sword now will never depart from your house. You brought the sword upon a man unnecessarily, and now the sword, consequentially, is going to come into your house, and for the rest of your life, you're going to experience this sword within your house. Not only that, But your wives, as you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite, your wives now are going to be taken by someone who is your neighbor, and it will not be done secretly as it was with Uriah, but it will be done openly before all Israel and before the son. And also the child that is the byproduct of this union, that child, David, will surely die. And David heard the words of Nathan the prophet, and what failed to get into his heart and all of the convictions that the Spirit brought, now the word of Nathan brings it. And David replies to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And as quickly as David utters the words, Nathan replies, And the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, the punishment for adultery was death, not just the restoration fourfold. And so as soon as David confesses this sin, God meets David with what David would have had, had he done it at any other point along the way, only without the consequences. God gives David mercy as quickly as he confesses and repents of his sin. You shall not die, how be it, and the passage ends with this, Because you've done this thing and because you've given great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child will die. In other words, you are forgiven, David, and you will live in spite of having committed this great sin. But the consequences of this sin will yet abide upon you and will remain with you, though you will be forgiven uh, uh, of this uh, great thing. That you have done. And so we have this passage before us that God carefully records. And then lays out for us all of the the, the, the details of it, and he has some things that he wants all of this to teach us. And so as we look at this passage and we kind of take a bird's eye perspective of it and see the thing as a whole, what is it that God uh, would have us to to learn from it uh, for our own lives, that we not go the same way as David, or if we have gone the way of David, or if we're in the way of David, in some way we might know what to do. do What is the instruction that this passage gives to us? The first thing, and if you're taking notes this morning, uh, you can jot this down. Um, The first thing concerns the dangers of coasting in the Christian life. The dangers of coasting or putting it on autopilot in the Christian life. Now, I'm absolutely certain that it is an, an immense pressure to be the king. Uh, of any nation, or to be even a leader of a small thing carries with it a certain amount of pressure. But to be the king over a nation, and not just any nation, but God's nation, and in a fairly young kingdom when things are, are, are still yet being established, and, and on top of that, that it's in wartime, when there's much more to look after than there is in airtime. time, I'm certain that there's a, an immense amount of pressure that comes along with that. And I can't even imagine... What it would be like to be David, and now for these 20 years to have had to uh, manage the kingdom in the way that he is. And I'm certain that every one of us can relate to the feeling of overwhelmingness uh, that that kind of position and that kind of pressure can bring into a life. And David looks around and he sees that, okay, well, I've got some resources now, and I've got some uh, personnel, and I've got some money, uh, and I've certainly got a lot of latitude and a lot of power. I'm going to just take a season and I'm going to rest. I'm not going to go out to battle with all the other enemies, but I'm just going to hang back here, and I'm just going to chill for a little while. The problem with that is that what it does in David's life, and what it does in any life, is that it creates a vulnerability within the soul where not only am I Am I not engaged fully in the difficulties of life, but I'm not engaged fully in protecting myself spiritually from the temptations and the trials that are yet going to come into my life? The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3, when the curse was uh, issued, remember when Adam sinned? And Eve and, and God came in and he cursed and he said, this is what it's going to be like for you now, devil. And this is what it's going to be like for you now, woman. And this is what it's going to be like for you now, man. And I want you to listen to what God said to Adam uh, when, when he gave him the consequences of the curse. He said this, he said, cursed is the ground for man's sake. That it will be by the sweat of your brow that you will now cause the earth to bring forth fruit unto you. That that is going to be now the byproduct of this curse upon all men. But do you hear what God said there? He said, Cursed is the ground for man's sake. In other words, it's not going to be easy for you to eke out a living. It's not going to be easy for you to bring forth fruit in your life. Life isn't going to be coasting. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be like it was before the curse when you would just say, water, come forth on the northwest quadrant of the garden. That's what it was like before. It's not going to be like that anymore, Adam. Now it's going to be by the sweat of your brow, and you're going to have to work, and you're going to have to be engaged, and you're going to have to feel the pressure and the sting of the thorns, and by the sweat of your brow, that's how you're going to cause things to come forward. And listen, Adam, it's for your sake that these things are going to happen. In other words, it's an action of my grace that that's the way that it's going to be. Because it isn't that I'm trying to willingly afflict you by the difficulties that you're facing in the pressures of daily life. Those things are actually a protection and a safeguard for you so that you're not vulnerable to the temptations and the arrows and the plights of the enemy. The pressures that come are not God's judgment upon us because he's angry with us. His difficulties in our lives are protections for us so that we don't end up in a place like David did here. When we are in a place where there's ease and vulnerability, we are in a very dangerous and precarious position within our lives. And God allows difficulties, pressures, circumstances, trials, thorns, sweat, pressure. God allows these things for us in our lives to protect us from what's to come. And so you're here this morning and you're in the midst of a very difficult marriage, very difficult marriage issue. And you say, this is the worst thing anyone could ever have to go through. And I would do anything to get out from under the weight and the pressure of what this is doing in my life or what I want in my life. I hate the feeling of this. I want out of it. Listen, out of it is a more dangerous place than in it if God's will for your life is that you would be in it. You might be here this morning and there's financial difficulties, financial straits. And you think, I, I, I work 50 hours, and I, life costs 50 hours of work. I work 60 hours, and life costs 60 hours of work. I work 20 hours, <laughs> life costs 50 hours <laughs> of work. And no matter what I do, I cannot get ahead in this thing. Listen, cursed is the ground for man's sake. If God has said it so within your life, then give thanks for it. You might be in a job that you absolutely hate. It's not the money issue. It's nothing, it, I hate the thing that I'm doing. The way, what this does to my mind, the way that it consumes me, the way that it causes my... Thing, I, I, I hate this. Listen, cursed is the ground for man's sake. Health issues, any pressure that God has put in, in our lives is there for our sake. And listen to me, men. For us to remove ourselves from that pressure, that God-ordained pressure that he has (laughs) placed in our lives, is either vain or foolish. It's vain because if God wants you under that pressure, then guess where you're going to be? You're going to be under that pressure. And if you trade that pressure on one front thinking that you're getting away from it, guess what's going to happen when you turn around to the other front? You're going to have pressure and it's going to be a world to hurt worse and you're going to wish for the pressure that you had before. So it's vain to try to get out of something that God wants you in. The reason it's foolish is because if your plan happens to work and you, like David, have the resources to be able to remove yourself from something that's difficult, if that plan happens to work then you are setting yourself up for a temptation that could cost you the sword and shame for the rest of your life that you and I don't have the foresight to be able to navigate through or see coming in our lives. If you're under pressure here this morning in any way, give thanks. Give thanks to God for every pressure in your life because you and I have no idea what we're being spared from through the pressures of the life that we're having. And this is how I'll give you comfort in this. You're saying, well, this is not what I came here to hear this morning. But here's where the comfort is. A billion years from now, you and I are still going to be alive. Do you understand that? A billion years from now, we're still going to be alive. And and, I, and and no matter what your pressure is, you might have financial pressures or health issues or marriage problems. But but listen to what I'm telling you right now. Is that a billion years from now, when we have a conversation and I say, how are things with you? Your reply to me is going to be, you know what? For the first 90, no, no, for the last 99.99999999999% of my life, I have been filthy rich and in amazing health that just seems to get better and better with each passing year. And my relationships are so good. I can't imagine, never could have imagined, having this kind of love and this kind of blessing, and everything in my life is perfect and amazing for the last 99.9999999%. you know that first point zero 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 one. 90 years that I was alive on earth, they were hard, man. It was a tough climb to get to this level where I am right now. How many of us read stories and articles of people that say, man, you know, for the first 30 years of my life, I was working five jobs and 90 hours a week and And then when I was 35 years old, man, I hit big, and now I'm talking to you from a golf course and a yacht. We say, man, that's the life. No, it's not. No, it's not. God has ordained that as long as we're in this world, that we are in the battle. And when we take a backseat to that battle, for whatever reason, thinking that we're going to live life now, we're setting ourselves up for destruction. That's what happened to David. Beware of coasting in the Christian life. We're called to sweat for our sake. Embrace those pressures. Embrace those difficulties. Don't run from them. Embrace them. The second thing that we learn from this passage, and this is important to understand, is that even the most devoted of hearts can become ice cold in a hurry. In a hurry. Have you ever sat on a hot summer day when it's 90 degrees and extremely humid outside and thought to yourself, I can't even imagine middle of winter right now? You know, I I have. Or you're in the middle of winter and there's not a leaf on a tree and it's freezing cold and you want to die because it hurts, it's so cold. And you can't even imagine seeing leaves on trees. It's it's so far from, you think they could never happen. Do you know the same thing can happen spiritually? We can be in such a good place with the Lord. Our prayer life is humming. We're in the Word constantly. Our our relationships are going well. Our church life we're serving. Everything with like, man, Lord, I love this. This, You're so good. And I just I, I, I can't imagine ever sinning against you, ever turning cold towards you. And did you know within one week of feeling that way, you can be completely on the other end of the spectrum and be so far from the things of God? It can happen. I want you to think about who we're talking about here. We're talking about King David. King David, who at at one point in his life, when, when just cutting the robe off of Saul's garment, remember, it says his heart smote him. Oh, God, how could I sin against you by cutting his clothes? How could I do such a thing, Lord, that was wicked? I'm sorry, this is David who wept for Abner, his enemy, when his enemy died. And he said, no, Abner, why did you die as a fool dies? It shouldn't have happened that the valiant should be slain in Israel. This is David who danced before the Lord with all his might when the ark of, of, of God came into to Jerusalem. This is David who said, you know what? I need to find me a descendant of Saul that I can bless. And so he goes and finds Mephibosheth, whose feet are lame, and he brings him into the palace and says, you're going to eat dinner with me every night, and you're going to be set for life. I'm going to take care of you forever because I care about you for Saul and Jonathan's sake. This is David who protected the dignity of some of his private rank soldiers when their beards were cut off and their buttocks were exposed by some of the enemies, David covered their dignity and he gave them a secure place in Jericho to resort and retreat until their beards could be grown again and they could obtain their dignity as men. This is a man who cares about people. This is a man who cares about the things of God. This is a man whose heart is soft towards God. But yet now, enter sin. Sin comes into the equation and the same man who we saw in that way, now he completely ignores the conviction of the Holy Ghost. He tells us, and you want to write this down, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. Those are the two Psalms that David wrote in response to this segment of his life. And I want you to listen to the things that were going on in David's heart while all of this was playing out. He says, I lost the joy of my salvation. He says, my bones waxed old within me. I lost my vitality and my energy and my strength. I became like an old man in a younger man's body. He says, the hand of the Lord was heavy upon my life and my emotions went stone cold. Now, we're not told any of that here in the passage in Samuel. But while David outwardly may have appeared to be the same David in the eyes of everyone else, inside, David knew the conviction of the Holy Spirit was pulling on him and saying, David, you sinned against the Lord. And this David, who was so sensitive at one point, now throws it off and has nothing for it. The same David who did all of those other things is now willing Think about this. He's willing to let Uriah the Hittite raise his son. He's willing to yet let another man raise his son, knowing full well that it's not his. And he's willing to let Bathsheba carry the knowledge of that for the rest of her life. He's willing to do that. He's willing to use Uriah's good character as a means of bringing his own death warrant to the man who will execute that death warrant. This man who had been so sensitive and so hot towards the things of God. This man is now willing to allow the nation to think that he's a hero after committing this deed and thinking what a valiant man to take this woman uh, to be his wife and, and the whole thing and to take care of her. And we see this man now willing to put a man guilty of a lesser crime to death for something that he's done, the man in the story that Nathan had. And and what's amazing to me in all this is how quickly that change happened. How quickly David went from a man who was soft-hearted towards the things of God to a man who was so ice cold that he has no compassion for anybody but himself. Listen, guys, it can happen. It can happen. That's why the Bible says, guard your heart with all diligence. When we allow sin to come in and we refuse to come clean and we continue to take it to the next level and to the next level and we just want to cover it up and we just want some smooth ease in and out of some action and we don't want to get into the light and the things going on in our lives, the consequence will always be that our heart will become harder and harder and harder. That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 3, Beware lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We see that in flesh and blood here in David's life. Number three is that all manner of sin will be forgiven. But what you reap is always exponentially greater than what you sow. If David had repented at the very first, when the conviction first came upon his heart, he would have suffered the shame of having done what he did. And he would have had to look at Uriah for the rest of his life, and Uriah would have known, and David would have known. We don't know how much further it would have gone than that. And there would have been consequence from what David did. But it would have stopped right there. But when David took it to the next level, and he sought to cover it up, And then he took it to the next level and he sought to cover it up and to the next level and sought to cover it up and ultimately resulting in the death of Uriah. David sowed in his life not just the shame of of having to confess from an adultery, but then the deceit and the murder and the craft and the covering up. And what David will now reap for the rest of his life is exponentially greater than what he uh, ultimately sowed at the first place. Actions have Consequences that cannot be undone, even if forgiveness comes into the equation. Because of the cross, we can be forgiven and we can be restored into a right relationship with God. We can have our joy back, our vitality back, we can have life on the other side of it. But the consequences of sin stay with us forever. If I trip out on LSD and I think that my right arm is possessed with a demon and I cut it off with a chainsaw, I can be forgiven for my sorcery and for my man mangling. You know, I can be forgiven for all those things. I do not get my arm back and understand this. The Bible says, do not be deceived. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. And if we sow to the wind, we will reap the whirlwind. If we sow to our flesh, we will of the flesh reap destruction. And God holds that out to us as a very sobering warning. We don't need to go that way. Number four is that there is life on the other side of even a great sin. David, from this point, will get up after his forgiveness is, is, is established. And amazingly, God is going to bless the union of David and Bathsheba. He's not going to say well this marriage is cursed and you know because because of the foundation of it and the whole thing no God's going to bless this marriage and not only that but they're going to have a son named Solomon and the Bible tells us in fact it's in this very chapter if you keep reading that God loved Solomon that the Lord beloved him loved him greatly and God gifted him God blessed his life God had a plan for him and God redeems this and you might be here right now in, in, in the middle of something that you, that you need to get out of, or you might be on the other side of something uh, thinking, man, I have absolutely blown it, and this is just one of the hardest things I've ever had to sit and listen to because I'm, I'm living this whole thing out. Listen, there is life on the other side of even the greatest sin. It, it, life isn't over. If you're still in this world, and you're still walking with God, then God can still bless even the things that are left over, from the carnage of, of, of something that was there in your past. God does it here. That's the nature of his mercy. It's what he, he does. Uh, not only does God bless the marriage and the offspring of David and all of this, but David becomes, through all of this, an extremely merciful person. David is blessed on the other side of this, in what was produced in his life and in his character as a result of it. Not only that, but David, believe it or not, seems to be set free from this sin. That has been a struggle in his life uh, for such a long period of time. Sometimes it takes a train wreck in order for a person to really be free from something that they struggle with. You know, they say that experience is the best teacher, right? The good news is it doesn't have to be your experience. It can be someone else's. You know, And that's why, <laughs> that's why God puts this story here, because we can learn from David's experience. But David doesn't struggle uh, anymore with sexual sin from this point within his life. He stops taking wives and concubines, and he seems to get past this uh, at this point. He sees it for what it is. Another outcome in David's life is that he becomes an even greater psalmist than he was already. The depths of the things that he writes, uh, the depths of his love for God, the understanding of grace... And forgiveness that David obtains through all of this is unlike any that anyone else in the Bible has ever experienced in themselves, perhaps, uh, them, but but it's true in, in David. And not only so, but now for you and I, David's testimony becomes a warning, a very clear warning to us of the dangers of sin. And so there's life on the other side of a great sin. And then finally, just as we close out for this morning, uh, we ask ourselves the question, uh, what do I do? If I've sinned, what do I do if I've sinned or if I find myself in a sin or that there is sin? The answer is this. The answer is repent and confess. The answer is to get into the light as soon as you quickly and possibly can. First John chapter one, verse nine, we started it on Wednesday night, it says that if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm amazed when I read this passage with what it says in verse 13 of chapter 12, where where David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And as quickly as David utters those words, Nathan can't get the words out fast enough, and the Lord has put away your sin. God quickly responds, to our repentance and confession with forgiveness. That's the power of the cross. That's what the blood has accomplished and paid for on our behalf is that our sin can be put away. Foolishness in our life is waiting when we first feel that conviction and we know the heavy hand of God, we feel the drying up of our vitality in our bones We sense the hardening of our heart and we wait and we decide, well, maybe this will just play itself out. Or maybe I'm just tired and this isn't the conviction of the Holy Spirit in my life. Or maybe this is just a season that people go through where I'm not hearing from the Lord. And this isn't because I'm walking down a wrong path, you know. And then we wait until we have an opportunity to try to cover it up and keep going. Proverbs chapter 28 Verse 13, listen to it and let it ring in your ears. Listen, he that seeks to cover his transgression will not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsaketh his sin shall obtain mercy. The way that we are to deal with sin in our lives is that we're to repent of it and we're to confess it. We're to change directions, meaning we're not going to continue going the way we're going. We're going to take a completely different course than the way that we're going right now, and we're going to bring it into the light regardless of the shame. One of the things that I've sought to teach my kids is that when they lie, it is infinitely a better decision to come clean about it right away than to continue on in that lie. It might be harder to tell the truth than it is to tell a lie, but it is infinitely better. Infinitely better. And that's the way of God. Confess quickly. We all sin. We all fall short in, in, in many ways. Some things uh, significant, and some things, not that there's greater, you know, this is worse sin. Sin is sin, but there are sins that carry bigger consequences than other sins. And God's means of, of, of uh Remedy is confession and repentance quickly. What did Jesus teach us when he taught us to pray, right? Our Father, which art in heaven, what did he say? Forgive us this day. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass. Confession is to be a daily part of our walk with the Lord. Because we need that shortness of account in order to maintain a soft heart towards the things of God. Absolutely essential. What else do I do if I've sinned? Not only am I to repent and confess it, but I'm to get back in the battle. Do you know by chapter, uh, by chapter 12, verse 29, verse 29 of the same chapter that, that we've been studying, David is fighting again. David gets the message. It's not for me to be in the palace at the time of year when the kings go forth to battle. I need to be engaged. If my heart is still beating and I can still hold a sword in my hand, then I need to be in the fight. David realized firsthand, cursed is the ground for my sake. What I'm experiencing in the pressures and the difficulties of daily life are of greater importance than the ease that I was seeking because of what the ease produces in a sinful heart. And every one of us has a sinful heart. And so we're to be in the battle. We're to be engaged in the battle. Do you know, there's there's nothing disrespectful. There's nothing to be disrespected. And a man who falls and then gets back up again and doesn't live the rest of his life in the shame of that fall, but gets back into the battle and continues on in the things of God, holds his head high, And say, yes, I've sinned. Yes, I've blown it. But I've been forgiven. And yes, there may be even consequences in my life from what I've done. But I am not going to let that affect the rest of my eternity. Or even the rest of my time here on this earth. I've been given grace by God. I've been called back into the battle by God. And now I'm going to continue by the grace of God. And I'm going to fight. And David does that. And it's nothing to be uh, disrespected. And so God sets this picture before us of this episode, this dark episode in David's life, and it serves to you and I both as a warning and also as an encouragement and an instruction, is that this is what sin will do in the life of any man or any woman, any person that gives themselves to compromise. And this also is how we deal with it. This is what we do when we find ourselves in a position where we've stumbled down a wrong path. And so God lays this out, not because he wants us to feel guilty and condemned and to say, "aha," but because he would have us as his sons to be warned, to be encouraged, and to be instructed. And so may this lesson in David's life burn itself into the being of our soul and that we might live according to what God has said by the truth and sell it not. Amen.